Hello and welcome to the Ghibli Rewatch series of the Overly Animated Podcast, where we will be going through every Studio Ghibli movie chronologically from the beginning. I'm Dylan Heisen, and today I'm joined by Michelle Ander. Hello. And Alex Bonilla. Hey. Yes, welcome to the first entry in our Ghibli Rewatch podcast series. This will be a regular regular weekly series every Wednesday morning, going through every Studio Ghibli movie from the beginning, that is over 20 movies. Um, this will be a few months we'll be doing these podcasts. If you're listening in the future, all the podcasts might be out already. Um, but if you're listening along with us, I mean, regardless, I guess you can watch or rewatch all of the Studio Ghibli movies kind of as we go weekly. And kind of the impetus for this is that they are available streaming for the first time across the world. Um, in the U.S. specifically, we're going to time this with the release of the Studio Ghibli's uh, movies being on HBO Max, a new streaming platform that's on May 27th, and we are here a week before that with the with a first movie which not is not technically part of the Ghibli catalog, and I don't believe is being treated as a Ghibli movie in any of these streaming platform streaming catalogs, and that is the Castle of Cagliostro, which is Hayao Miyazaki's directorial debut. Um, but before that, we're gonna like uh, I'm gonna introduce everything about this series, then we'll start getting into that that movie um so and, uh, after- cagliostro specifically on netflix right uh, now yeah, yes yes as of as of our our current presence castle cagliostro is on net is on netflix in the united states um and uh, more generally all these ghibli movies will be on netflix internationally relative to where we are uh so every country except for u.s japan canada will have the Ghibli movies on Netflix, the United States will have them on HBO Max. So if you've never seen Ghibli before, now is the perfect chance to watch each movie you could do once a week, follow along with us on the podcast. I think I know some people like doing that with podcasts they listen to, or um, you can watch all of them. And then as they come out, listen to these. Um, and if you've seen them all, now's a great opportunity to rewatch. I know some of these I have not seen in a while. Some I've seen more recently. Uh, just very excited to get into every Ghibli movie again. So, yeah, join us every Wednesday morning. These podcasts will be coming out for a new Ghibli movie. Um, and uh, so I'll be joined by, you know, Michelle, Alex, a few other people. Some of us are Ghibli experts. Some of us more Ghibli newbie- newbies. We'll probably have some sort of mixture on for each movie. Maybe the co-host has seen it. Maybe they haven't. Um, and uh, we all enrich our Ghibli journey together with all of our perspectives <laughs> on all these movies. Yes. That, our that's... Ghibli journey. Alliteration kind of. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So come re- <laughs> totally <laughs> planned. Come rewatch all of them. Is should that have been the name for the podcast? Ghibli Journey instead well, of Well let's Ghibli do it Rocks. now. It's early. Let's let's yeah, switch. I can change yeah, it. Just edit it. <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll see. We'll see what you see in the feed, what the name is. Uh so yes. Uh well, so today Cagliostro next week, Nausicaa, which also technically not Ghibli, but has been adopted by the Ghibli canon, and then going through all the Studio Ghibli movies. As as our present is, there's two in production, which is exciting. Um, and then, you know, maybe at the end, we can throw in any sort of Ghibli-adjacent movies like Mary and the Witch's Flower. We'll see. And maybe some bonus ones at the end. But um, we have a lot of Ghibli catalog to go to uh, to go through here, several months worth of podcasts. 
Um, and, uh, in terms of subbed or dubbed, I'm, you know, this is a, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but this is, I'm going to try to make this a sub judgment free zone, whichever you prefer to watch subbed or dub is fine. I've not mandated anyone watch any specific one. I would say for the most part, you'll find that we will probably watch them subbed and we'll discuss the subbed movies. Um, but if you're watching them dubbed, uh, personally, I think the, some Ghibli movies have some of the best movie dubs ever made. Some of them aren't as good, but um that's that's also very valid um and then uh you know last thing is i kind of want to present uh i'll i'll be leading i'll be leading us through this this ghibli catalog and i feel like i am qualified to do so i know there's a lot of uh intense ghibli fans out there so i want to show that i know what i'm talking about i first so I, and i'll ask um michelle and alex this when we start talking about the movie kind of what their own ghibli perspectives are um, I first watched all the Ghibli movies kind of when I was a teenager and fell in love with them. I've seen all the Miyazaki ones multiple times, I think. Maybe not Ponyo or something. Well, so we'll see when we get to that one. But, uh, the, all of the other, almost, some of the other ones. I mean, look, there's some I didn't love as much the first time. I'm interested to see how much, uh, if I like them anymore the second time. Um, or, or multiple times. But, uh, and, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of them multiple times. I, um, uh, I've read a Miyazaki book, which I'm going to reference probably throughout this series, which is um, Miyazaki World by Susan Napier. I know there's a lot of great Miyazaki books as well. I'll reference other um, Miyazaki information. Um, last December, I made the pilgrimage to the Ghibli Museum in Japan, and it was amazing. Um, and so maybe I'll talk about that, I guess, if probably probably for the Nasuka podcast specifically, but um, can bring some bring in some knowledge of that. So um, hopefully I'll be uh, giving the perspective as a Ghibli expert here, and then we have varying degrees of Ghibli knowledge as well throughout uh, our, our other people on this podcast. So I think that's basically everything. Um, and, uh, we're going to be getting into, like I said, Castle of Cagliostro, Cagliostro. I don't know what the, you know, I feel like there might be a pronunciation difference between English and Japanese for this one. Um, but, uh, this is a loop in the third movie. It is a, uh, very, it's a weird one to start on. I would say starting to get into the introduction for this movie, because the, you could argue, I think this is the most different. Miyazaki directed film like out of all of them like this stands out as maybe the most different of all of his movies specifically because it's a um an entry in a in a series uh in an in an anime series you know it's a, a movie in the Lupin series there's there's been uh Lupin television shows I don't think any other Ghibli movie is an entry in an existing animated property there's a lot that are adaptations of books they're kind of loose adaptations but this one, um, and, and like we said, this isn't even technically a Ghibli movie. This is Miyazaki gets assigned this as his first, uh, as his directorial debut in 1979. A lot of these movies will be a long time ago. Um, Miyazaki already, uh, in his late thirties when he's directing this, he already has a lot of experience on a lot of early anime works in Japan, including, um, an earlier loop in the third, um, anime series earlier in the seventies with Takahata as well. And we'll be talking a lot, of, a lot about Takahata's movies. Um, he worked with Miyazaki on Lupin, among other properties in the 70s. And um, there's other kind of pre-Ghibli works we could have included in this. I think generally this is considered the place to start. You know, going through Ghibli is going through the works of Takada and Miyazaki and a bunch of other amazing artists. But also, sp- but specifically Miyazaki is going to be a lot of the focus when we talk about his films as um, pre- as what many consider to be the greatest anime director of all time. Um, so I think starting with his first film makes a lot of sense here. And 
it's an it's a fitting one to start with in some ways, even though it's very different, because I think there are a lot of um, Miyazaki common elements that we'll see throughout all of his movies. And we'll talk about that as well. Um, so that all that being said, as introduction to Cagliostro, Michelle, uh, yes. we can start uh, hearing from you. Like, uh, what's for, first introduce everyone to your history with Ghibli movies? Well, like. How many have you seen? When did you watch them? Have you seen this movie before? When did you first see it? And then, you know, like generally, what do you think of this movie? Oh, boy. Okay. So I, I'd i say like I'm a relatively moderate fan of Ghibli movies. I've seen about 85% of them at this point. Um, all except for like, I think, Pompoko, My Neighbor the Yamadas, um, as the wind rises and the tale of princess uh, that one that's a big one all but like four so like the latest ones and like and the only reason i didn't see the other two was like i started watching the majority of ghibli when i was in high school and only the most popular ones were available to find illegally online (laughs) during those times in my life so it was really easy to find like princess mononoke and nausicaa um, and Kiki's delivery service, but like some of those, like oh man, so, some of the like the, the way more like slice of life ones were super hard to track down for years and years. Um, but they're all really amazing. Um, I I think the first one I ever watched was like the first anime I ever watched. I was like eight years old, and it was when Spirited Away came out in theaters in the U.S. And I was not prepared for that at all. It totally went over my head in so many ways. But I still really liked it. (laughs) Like, I liked the characters, even though I had no, like, frame of reference for anything that was happening. Um, And then I just fell in love with them in high school. And this one, honestly, (laughs) I hadn't seen before. So me and Alex watched it, like, a couple weeks ago for the first time. And I was shocked I'd never picked it up sooner because... It's such a fun movie. I was like a little curious. I I haven't watched a lot of the Loop in the Third, like film adaptations. I know there's several anime series over the years. There's like a new movie coming out. Like this character's been beloved and reincarnated in many forms for like several decades now. And I wasn't sure like how much of a James Bond character he was gonna be. I was like trying to like hold my reservations if he was going to be like really like sleazy and gross which apparently like he kind of is just not when Miyazaki's directing him as a character because he was very just like sweet and charming and down to earth and just like an all-around nice fun quirky person as a protagonist and that was incredibly enjoyable I almost wonder like would this have been marketed in the U.S. like a children's movie because like part of me can really see that it's the like there are stakes i mean and the people shooting guns at each other but like honestly like castle in the sky had all that and they they targeted that through disney children so maybe this was considered a children's movie i really liked it a lot i thought it was beautiful i was kind of you know there are definitely a lot of miyazaki things in this just in terms of like his fascination with like machinery and cars and planes and just taking moments to have like a breath and enjoy the view like even in this movie even in a lupin movie like you're like oh wow like look at this beautiful landscaping shot or like oh yeah it's a pretty gazebo let's <laughs> take some time in the plot to admire it which are like all the lovely touches that kind of like make his style stand out 
So I, I really enjoyed it. I would absolutely watch this movie again, like hands down. It was such a fun romp the whole time. A fun romp. I like it was that a as fun a romp. review of, of yeah, Put that on the DVD cover. Yeah. <laughs> a fun romp, Michelle, 2020. Yeah, Michelle, that's the, for the re-release. Yeah, uh, yeah. good points about it. We'll definitely be getting into the history of Lupin a little bit just to compare it to how Miyazaki's Lupin differs. I think that's a really interesting discussion point about this movie. But all that, but, uh, all that cool. Alex, same, same kind of questions. Your history with Ghibli, this movie, and what do you think of it? Okay, so first, my history with Ghibli. Um, as a relative latecomer to animation, I did not even know Miyazaki existed for pretty much my entire childhood. Not until like uh, become turn, turning eighteen and have being more into the internet. It's like, oh, people talk about these old movies. It's like something <laughs> that's like really cool animation. And so eventually, you get around to watching the bit the the big movies that people talk about: Spirited Away, uh, Mononoke, Whisper of the Heart. Uh, and uh, usually I would take Fathom Events was a very big deal in me catching up to those those movies. So like when they were when they had screenings in the theater here in Philadelphia, me, me living independently, I was like, oh, OK, this is finally a reason for me to go like watch those movies on like a really big screen if they're as good as people say they are. And each time I went to a new movie, I'd be like, wow, is this the best movie I've ever watched? Wow, this is great. Like, uh, Nausicaa, especially, I remember having that, that kind of reaction. But um, it, I've only watched like the, 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 the most well-known movies. A lot of the, the small the movies in between I have not watched, uh, including uh, Cagliostro, which, uh, as Michelle mentioned, we, we watched together a couple weeks ago. And that was also the first time I'd seen it. Although, um, just briefly with, with Lupin the Third, I do remember that I, I feel like it was a year ago where we, there was a trailer for, for a three, for a CGI version of the movie. And I was really impressed. Yes. Uh, and, and I was really it's impressed so by it. And at the same time, I had Verve, which has the, the, the Lupin the Third, the Miyazaki series on it. So I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll like to look up some episodes, see what this is about. So I actually watched a couple of episodes of Lupin the Third a while ago. Like the original show. Yeah, the original show, and, and including some of the Miyazaki directed episodes. So I went into Gagliostro knowing a little, a little bit about Lupin and Lisa. I wasn't lost with the characters, but I'll say, um, with this movie, I think it does a really. Even if you didn't watch any any Lupin the Third, it establishes the characters really really well. And the uh, um, you you get who everybody is pretty quickly and their their deal. Uh, it's a very so as with all Miyazaki movies that I've watched so far, it's very colorful. It's uh, it uses uh, music at the uh, at in interesting ways. Um, as Michelle mentioned, it feels very wholesome um, compared to um, what it what it could be. Um, well, we might talk about the series later, but just like in general, that series is a little bit more uh, d- down down to earth, gritty than than what this movie is, which is uh, which maybe is a testament to like how he handles it, his characters. And um, at the same time, it, it's also one that doesn't it doesn't feel like it has a pointed message compared to other movies that that I watch. It's kind of like 
focused on this story within this universe. But I enjoy that nonetheless. Like it, they they keep it keeps as adventurous as possible throughout, and the, the stakes stay high. Uh, I would say that it there are some moments where it gets dramatic to a point where like I'm not sure children <laughs> would really want want to watch it. I mean, they could probably survive, but uh, the, there are some there are some moments that make elevate it to being a, a, a you know a more serious film. Um, but yeah, Cagliostro, uh, I I wouldn't uh, I'd say that it's uh, it's very entertaining. It's not exactly on the t- on the top tier uh, of movies uh, that that I've seen from Miyazaki, but still, like it's very rewatchable because of the fact that it's it's a fun story throughout, and uh, all the main characters are, are likable, uh, even d- down to like the inspector character who's more like more villainous in the series. But like here, he's like he's fun and he fits into the story pretty well. So uh, all in all, uh, this was uh, this was a fun uh, fun ride. Um, I I, w- I would second fun romp even. <laughs> okay, okay, Th- two two romps so far. Two votes um, for romps. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I would not have thought of calling this a romp, but it, I I think it fits. But uh, the, that's cool, Alex. You've seen some Lupin because I, I this is the only Lupin thing I've ever seen. Like I'm I'm familiar with the character and I've read um, about it. And I'll reference some some like uh, outside materials and stuff, but. Um, the, definitely, like this was my introduction to Lupin. Still, kind of the only Lupin thing I've I've consumed. Yeah, I first watched this when I was going through all the Ghibli movies, um, you know, forever ago, and I really liked it at the time. Um, really liked it when I rewatched it uh, just a few days ago. Um, I think you could consider this to be like I think your opinion, Alex, is basically um, what what others would say. I don't think this would be in kind of the top tier, but if you want to consider this right 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 outside of that, right there. I think that that is um, very valid. This is a great movie. Uh, it's 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 different. Um, I think one of the first discussion points I had into, I didn't mention this beginning, but like I feel like it is a a genre movie in how um, it's like you're right. It doesn't have like a pointed Miyazaki type message. It's focused on on being uh, a, a member of kind of the action adventure spy type genre you know even though lupin's a thief you know this is heavily based on james bond so kind of you get the spy vibes going on i think um and and that in itself even though there's so many common elements from miyazaki's later films i think like uh it it being this genre entry is is very different and honestly this is just one of the best action adventure movies i've ever seen like miyazaki just in first movie instantly just makes one of the like one of the best ones like uh, i know right it would be good he waited (laughs) till he was in his late 30s so he could just just nail it down completely on his first try yeah, and it's like, oh, it would be cool if Miyazaki did another movie like in this vein specifically. I mean, maybe there's some yeah. Pocoroso is a little similar ish to that, but but it's like he nailed it for already. So why why go back? I feel you know this is <laughs> it, it's it's already so good. Um, so, uh, so remembering some things Alex and Michelle were talking about, and I think Michelle was talking about the uh, lack of availability of Ghibli films. Um, growing yes, up. Oh, um, and that's why yeah. that's why this is like the impetus for doing is such a big deal. I feel like that everyone can watch every Ghibli movie now. Like that's like literally. Most of these movies, half or more, you could only find like sketch- sketchy places online for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, or like were... rented DVD, but like, yeah. where are you going to do that anymore? Yeah. Really growing growing up there, there are a few that permeated kind of like probably throughout our childhoods. I think Spirited Away and Kiki's Delivery Service were two really oh, big ones. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Those, those were like so gen- genuinely big hits. Um, so uh, like I, those are my first experiences actually probably watching those two movies specifically like pretty young. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think Cagliostro is great. I, I don't think it's like, uh, one other Ghibli opinion to establish. I, I think that there are three studio, three Miyazaki directed movies, which I, I would say are the three best movies I've ever seen. The three best films, like in my opinion of all time, which I think is a crazy hot take, but, um, so, it's crazy hot take. uh, that, that like should establish the love I have for some of these movies and Cagliostro isn't quite up there, but I think it is, um, pretty pretty incredible and I, something that struck me on this viewing is just how gorgeous this movie is like uh mm-hmm. this is up there yeah, i feel like with some of his pretty. yeah i was gonna say like it feels wrong to be like hey this miyazaki movie is col- is very colorful like as if that's a special thing but at the same time like you consider this is like his first directorial debut so, uh, this his di- directorial debut so the fact that already that's established as like one of his signatures is in itself notable and i i think that with the whole setting of, of it being a medieval castle and all uh, there are many cases of that setting being portrayed as dark and uh, and moody and whatnot but like th- there's still like a lot of moments uh that he infuses here it being you know br- bright and fun to look at you know yeah and i think this is going to be one of these like common miyazaki elements that we see which is it's very vague but gorgeous animation specific specific scenery shots um Miyazaki movies are very prone to do the pillow shot, the just just shot of the background, um, just showing off the animation, hold on it for a longer time than you would see for other movies. I think this movie definitely does that a few times. Um, maybe most, most notably when we see the, the, the titular castle for the first time. I think that's um, like a, a really incredible shot. Uh, we spend a lot of time surveying it with the characters. And then I feel like another really notable one is at the end when we see the uh, Roman city that they unveil. We spend yes. a lot of time looking at that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I, I, sh- I guess the other thing I didn't say is that we're going to be full spoilers for all these movies. So uh, <laughs> should, I'll, I'll remember to say that at the top next time. But um, Spoilers, there's a castle. Yeah, there is a castle in this movie. And and the castle itself is another common Miyazaki element. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of castles. We'll see in, in two movies, we'll see a whole movie about a castle and stuff. Uh, so a lot of castles going on. And this is a really gorgeous castle. Maybe we'll start to rank all the Miyazaki castles as we go. Maybe that can be a thing. Uh, but uh, no, I, th- I really think this is up there with um, some of his most gorgeous works. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think we, we all kind of agreed this is like a really good entry as a genre movie. Does uh, I, I, one of you said, one of you said the that it doesn't have like i think alex you said it doesn't have like this message do you think it loses something like a lot of miyazaki movies it, this movie isn't as heavy with the environmentalism not as heavy maybe with feminist themes you know like it's it, it leaves it, it's more i think more focused on action and telling the story is that maybe a reason it's not as successful as some of his best um, perhaps. I mean, I, I, I guess I had come to expect that that kind of stuff from from his movies. So the fact that this one do- doesn't really end up with anything specific, it, it, it just I wouldn't say it detracts from the movie because obviously you can have a movie just be like really a really fun time without making you think about any <laughs> heavy stuff in the outside world. And like if we dig into it, we'll we'll see there are like hint, hints and pieces you can dig out of this already. So uh, I'd say that it, it it keep if you're like ranking movies, then yes, it it hurts its ranking and that it doesn't feel like it's doing anything transcendent. But at the same time, I don't think it takes away from it fulfilling its purpose, which is being an entertaining adventure movie. Nice, yeah, Michelle. What do you think of that? Do you think it it, it loses anything from not having a me- more me- heavy messaging? 
I mean, I think one thing to really consider here is every other Ghibli movie Miyazaki's gotten to direct has been his own movie, you know? Like, the, well, okay, that's not true at all. I mean, but <laughs> I think, like, there, there's some that are loosely based on Yeah, like, Howl, yeah. for sure not. Um, Kiki, for sure not. But I think as, like, a first-time director with such a beloved, like, well-known, established franchise as Lupin the Third, there's only so much you can do that won't, say, maybe, like, alienate the fan base. I feel like this movie is much more an example of, like, a Miyazaki twist on a beloved, like, staple IP character, you know, versus, like, a Miyazaki movie. Even though, like, I look at it and say, like, oh, yeah, like, I can feel him in this movie everywhere. I think it's a different thing trying to take on a whole, like, very well-established property for one movie and try to, like, reinvent the wheel. You know, there's a certain amount that he probably still had to adhere to in terms of, like, maybe character personalities or plot or just, like, the genre of an action-adventure spy kind of movie that weren't necessarily his like go-to thing but more or less like he made it work in his own style and ways that made sense to him i feel like that's like what's kind of cool about it the fact that like it is still like probably i'm assuming a recognizable movie in the regular loop in the third franchise but even within that it has like a very specific miyazaki feel that the other movies don't or that the show that the ones that weren't touched by Miyazaki don't have, you know, that like Alex was saying, like, maybe those are a lot more grittier. And, you know, this is like kind of fun and light, but that's like why it's so fun to watch it, because it's just really funny. It's like there's a lot of action and stakes, but it's also like very pleasant and enjoyable to watch. And you don't like worry too much. Anything really terrible is going to happen. Yeah, and I I think definitely Miyazaki's putting his own twist on a Lupin movie. You could, I think you could go further in that, further than that, in that he's really making this character and this world his own with this movie. Mm-hmm. I think he makes some pretty big, uh, di- some pretty big changes from the the typical Lupin character, which he had worked on earlier. But I think he ages Lupin up um, and makes him kind of like this this wistful looking back type of um, older thief here. Uh, probably one of the biggest things he does is really take away this um, kind of womanizing aspect of of Lupin to a large extent. We still see it in the movie. I think he, he has that um, brief exchange with the waitress at one point. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he clearly is um, enamored with Claire, Clarice to a certain extent, but he makes a clear decision to uh, not go down that route, which I think is yes. I feel like that's a very not Lupin move uh, to do. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it would be weird considering, I think a lot of us associate Miyazaki with, um, female characters at the center of a lot of his movies and feminist themes. It would, it's, it's kind of weird that his first movie is this James Bond type character. Um, but it's like, once you see what he does with the character, I think it's like, oh, that makes sense. Like that feels very, that feels very Miyazaki. Um, I want to, I want to read a quote from, from Miyazaki by Susan Napier, because I thought this was when she said, uh, an, an open letter Miyazaki published in the Lupin fan club newsletter made clear that his Lupin was going to be a very different character from the manga's flamboyant playboy hero. The fledging director explained Lupin's actions are not really motivated by superficial things such as money, jewels, or women. In fact, Miyazaki suggested at the base of Lupin's soul swirls a rage towards the machinery of society that suffocates humanity, and he tries to bury the falseness of his heart through the, through spurning himself to act. Action. He is fighting to give his life meaning, and he is yearning for someone who can lead him to that fight. Um, 
I feel like that's a good summary of Lupin, of Lupin, of Miyazaki's own quote in the newsletter of, of his character in this movie. Um, we, uh, Napier talks a lot about kind of these uh, yearning, wistful, ephemeral theme, themes or tone that's going on throughout this movie. Um, you know, Lupin feels like he's trying to, um, I don't know if he's trying to recapture something, but he, I feel like he always does come across a little bit wistful uh, throughout the movie. And uh it's... Well, uh, I get there's like an underlying um, theme of him wanting to to make up for his previous failure yeah, of, yeah. of yeah. De- dealing with this castle. It's never a focus of it, but like that 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 idea is always floating around. Especially when we when we get to him being injured and him recounting his story, it like brings it back into the forefront. But it's always there in the movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I feel like that that kind of energy takes the place of um, maybe more of this aggressive male energy that might uh, otherwise be there with the sort of character. Um, but he kind of hints to the fact that he was very much like that in his youth. Yeah. It's just that, like, if Miyazaki did age him up by, like, 10 or 20 years, he is like, you know, those were his, like, his childhood or, like, young adult days. But now he's he's looking for something different for me- mattering in his life, like a new kind of meaning, I guess. Yeah, and that, that that feels like such a good move to make with if you want to not play into the, yeah. the the sorts of this character, but still make it this character, you know, you make him older, and I think it fits within the character and still goes in the direction you want. Um, and if we're, if we're talking on, on, on this level with uh, Lupin, I think his relationship with Clarice throughout the movie is is probably the most interesting subject. One of the most striking movin- uh, moments at the end is when he kisses her on the forehead after she kind of goes in for a kiss and then she she like wants to go with him and he he says no um and uh <laughs> i think this is really striking like especially for the time and the setting like the and the context of this movie but i feel like even now we're, we're used to this character this is still a convention in media in 2020 of um you know this character would get the girl even if she's younger even i mean the movie doesn't make it super clear but clarice i think is 16 in this movie so it's like of course he should be doing doing this uh but uh you know you it's still isn't it's i feel like that's one of the most striking parts of the movie it still feels like a a big a big move i think on on lupin and the, the the messaging of the movies like i feel like that's a message in its own right if this movie isn't full with with uh clear messaging like miyazaki's other movies michelle what do you think of like because i think you could argue this movie would be one of miyazaki's less feminist movies just because of the subject matter or is it like because he subverts what it might be it doesn't make it um more feminist the subversion definitely helps. I will say also, like, if this movie came out in 79, the landscape of, like, how things were so much more, like, insanely specifically gendered to an extreme between, like, the 70s and the 90s even, it, compared to now, it's, like, night and day. Like, do you guys remember when, like, princesses were, like, everywhere? In like the mid '80s, like I know none of us were alive then. Like that's like when like audience. all the all the shows, like all these prints, like it was a thing just to have like the very like you know like to have someone rescue someone and to have that be like very defined by your gender. I think like aging Lupin up definitely helps with that. But I'll just say like before I realized the tr- the twist with the ring when he's in like her chambers and he does the magic trick with her. I immediately was like, yo, this feels like something like an uncle would do. Like, this feels just like 
a charming like older man like trying to like do something nice for a young kid to help them like relax kind of thing there was nothing romantic about the magic trick session <laughs> at all so at the end when he smooches her on the forehead and she's expecting him to kiss her on the mouth and he doesn't i like clapped and cheered but also it made total sense by then because he rem- yeah he, he she is a kid to him he remembers her being like a baby child when he was like a young adult so i i think it like makes sense that there's no way he would go for that even though like he's a guy and i guess he could and and no one would judge him even though he's like a lot older i i mean i feel like there there are a few miyazaki movies where like maybe women aren't as prominent but i will say like for the time period she Clarissa does, like, what she can. She's a, a noble woman who's not used to roughing it. But, like, when Lupin saves her, like, off the cliff, she, like, you know, she takes off her glove and she, like, wipes his face to, like, try to wake him up. And then when they're on the rooftop and the Count's, like, shooting at him and she thinks he's going to die, she, like, goes over to make a deal with the Count to spare his life. Like, Miyazaki always does a good job of giving women characters like reasons to help and be useful like actual people even if like the amount of them doing action is significantly less than like the male real true main character like they're never just there they're always trying to help where it like makes sense and i really appreciate that because that does seem like an extra going the extra mile especially for something that was you know being made in the 70s where you really like no one was gonna bat an eye if you didn't have all that in there the fact that he did have it in there i think like says a lot so i like it i love clarice i think she's great She's yeah. doing her best to help out. <laughs> She's definitely doing her best. Yeah, I think I think you you'll, you will find that basically every other Miyazaki movie has more like screen time for female characters, yeah. more agency for female characters, but none of them are working with the constraints that he has with this property. You know, mm-hmm. so I think like given what what Lupin is, I think he's he's making Clarice pretty prominent, and she does have a lot of scenes of of doing of like helping out in the way she can. Um, yeah, please. I mean, Fujiko's there to be the counter to Clarice. Like, Clarice is helping out in very specific ways that make sense for kind of like her character. But Fujiko's just like an amazing spy in her own right and just like so good at what she's doing. And she always seems to get away. And she's like kind of ahead of Lupin in that department a lot of times, which is like amazing too. So I feel like the fact that Clarice is also not the only female character in this movie helps a lot for that to like balance it out. And I want to say, I I believe that Fujiko is the more impressive of the two characters in terms of what Miyazaki does with them, because uh, Clarice, as far as I know, is an original character for this story, whereas Fujiko was an existing character in the series. She was often uh, more uh, drawn, more sexualized than she is in this movie. She's used as either a love interest to impulse... uh, um, uh, Lupin to to fight a villain or, or a villain is made more menacing because they're threatening Fujiko you know like a classic d- a lady in distress stuff that's kind of what Fujiko was was there for she still had the spy stuff 
but they needed to use her for the tropes. Whereas here, they carry over the spy stuff. She's doing that, but she's not. But at the same time, like they leave behind the the cliches of her needing to be the sexy one in the in the movie. Like she's just that that the part of the movie where she's in the camouflage suit is amazing because <laughs> like it's fun, it's functional, and at the same time, like she still looks good in it no matter what, and she's still a, she ends up being a useful character through, throughout the entire movie. And you have a, at the end where like Fujiko leaves with the place and like that's classic Fujiko compared uh, with the show. Like that's something that that character would do. But uh, the, the interesting part is like you change an existing character that's been treated like any other female character would be in that time and you make her into some into someone who's more who is more important to the story treated with more respect than she was in the series and so i i particularly enjoyed that part because fujiko is is pretty great in this movie yeah i think it's i think it's that's a, another great point is that's the other element fujiko not romantically involved with lupin in this movie not yeah like they like she's, she's like uh like a rival in the most like playful, fun, encouraging sense of the yeah. word. Like I, I she's a fellow like, spy, like doing her best to also get like money and have a good time. I think they make reference to it once, like in when they first meet, like yeah. long time no see. But again, like that's speaking to the fact that we're kind of pushing this in in a in a in a future of this universe where it's been a while since all the stuff happened, and you know that that helps matters. It helps us to you know move move on and like consider these characters in their own universe of this movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think oh, that's great. Great presentation of those two characters. Um, so I think that's a big a big like uh, element of like Mizaki's treatment of female characters that we we see in this movie we'll see throughout his movies we've talked about castles talked about um I mean I guess let's bring in planes there's a prominent plane in here uh, <laughs> oh my god I, I, that's probably the most uh memes or iconic whatever your perspective is Mizaki elements there's always going to see planes in his movies there's there we get we get one here um I think I think that's so environmentalism, another really prominent one. I do think there's a large threat of that in the ending of this movie. And I think it's a little n- not as in your face as some of his other movies. But I think the discovery of the Roman city is um, tang- is right in line with his environmentalist themes. Maybe his preservation themes that kind of goes along with that. Th- this notion of discovering the city, giving it to the world, um, it it's it 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 very like the the world it belongs to the world like I feel like that's a big component of of the the environmentalism and just the notion of this being the past Miyazaki has kind of um, preserved the past centric approach on on environmentalism that I think to a large extent so I think like we have we unearth the city and we'll keep it there like this that that felt that like I think goes in line with kind of like don't you know make the the forest into the the toxic forest or whatever and like uh, you know like this it, i think i think it, it it feels a lot like that even if it's interestingly more of a man-made thing than uh innate nature thing going on um and uh yeah like like his i do think there's a large element of history to his to his uh to his movies and he he has a large deference i feel like to old-fashionedness um not in a problematic way but in like a like you know like preserving things of the past and cultural of the past 
Um, and I think a lot of I think similarly his um, maybe like res- being respectful towards women. I think a lot of his feminist perspective maybe comes a little bit out of that as much as his uh, protect the environment because it's like uh, preserve like the way things used to be comes out of that. So all that all that I feel like is thematically related. And, and like I see how he arrives at, at what happens at the end of this movie, m- similarly to how he'll arrive at like strikingly going right to Nausicaa, which is um, kind of the extreme of his <laughs> All about. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I guess, I guess that and uh, Mononoke. Um, Mononoke, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, that's a lot of stuff. So I do think this definitely feels like a Miyazaki movie, but it also feels just like a, like a fun action-adventure movie. And I think another... Another element of that uh, genre movie is like the action sequences are pretty revered in this movie. Oh like mm-hmm. they're so fun. There's just they're mesmerizing to watch. Like the car physics on the roadside <laughs> drive is just like yeah. it's like funny, but it's like so great to be like, how is this car gonna do it? Oh, okay, what's gonna happen now? Yeah, it does kind of throw you for a swerve. Like you're about to get this like real uh, serious uh, mystery movie, but it be, uh, in like the first five minutes, there's a car going up on the wall as if this is Looney Tunes. <laughs> but like that's the power of animation that you can do both in the same movie. It, it fits. You can make it fit. Yeah, I, I I'm gonna look out for that on future these future. I don't remember much of him play like having cartoony physics because there's also the scene of him jumping through the the castle towers. Oh, I love yes. that sequence. Oh, that's a, when, that's a really when he's good like, sequence. oh yeah, I'll totally make this jump. It's like no actual person could make it, but maybe you could, Lupin. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, like and and the beginning of that, as we mentioned, the, the, the chase in the beginning, it's 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 potentially the most historically notable part of the movie, even if it's like the one I would least to go to talking about because i just love everything else after it too but um like that scene like was like showed at disney in like the 80s or 90s and had like a huge influence on disney animators um there's i want to i we need to mention the the steven spielberg rumors with this movie because um <laughs> i'd always heard rumors. i'd always heard that, that spielberg called this the greatest adventure movie of all time i'd heard that now okay. turns out i don't know if that's sourced like i there i don't see i have not found a source for this it used to be on wikipedia it's been removed for wikipedia <laughs> um, oh no uh, and then the he, edit history. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, he's. But I found this in the the one uh, one of the Ghibli wikias, and then he he uh, another potential quote is he called the car chase one of the greatest chase sequences ever filmed. Um, regardless of whether he exactly said these things, he he definitely seems to have seen and liked this movie. I think you you can find it playing in the background of one of his movies at some point. So there's some proof that this that he's seen and this movie and stuff. Um, but yeah, for for this being like a non Ghibli movie, Miyazaki's somehow this is like permeated to a certain extent throughout uh you know i guess hollywood even even potentially live action people but certainly has made an impact on on the animation industry um maybe as much as we'll definitely talk about how much nausicaa and similar iconic uh, miyazaki movies have permeated throughout modern animated works um this movie i think has a legacy of at the very least it's it's action sequences have have been a big influence on animation um, um the, this, while we're on the topic of action sequences also there there's the the climax scene when they're fighting in the clock tower mm-hmm. and they're like going from gears to gears and, like everything's yeah. moving in the background while they're the sword fighting and all and like that 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 was that's really impressive and also i think it, it sets up miyazaki's thing with technology in later movies as well like he's, he he loves seeing those gears move and things <laughs> Yeah, clock, he clocks loves and gears. Machines. 
Jeez, you just yeah. It. I mean, if we're talking about Disney being influenced, the Great Mouse Detective apparently came out in 1986. So that's plenty of time for them to have taken influence from those gears yeah, for their I think movie. So. I think so. Uh, here's something that uh, I've read. I was re- reading the Music Girl book, and supposedly this movie was made in four months. Um, what? I don't really Why? know how that works, but Why suppose- did he only have four months? <laughs> if you look at Miyazaki's filmography, it's like he did something in '78, and then this movie came out in '79, so it kind of lines up. But uh, they apparently just constantly worked on this movie for four months. And Miyazaki is, uh, if we're talking about him as a person, is known for just being a complete workaholic um, to the point of uh, him like adversely influencing his health or him being very scared of that and retiring several times to try to not have that happen. Um, oh, but I think it God. starts here with he make like, how is this movie made in four months? This is one of the most gorgeous movies ever made. Like what? It, like what? Uh, Maybe he just did everything. Maybe that's what that means. He's like, oh, you're not animating fast enough. I'll animate this section. I think think him him and the team. Yeah, like he does. He does. He works on like every aspect. Oh, yeah. There's he dominated production, taking over art, layout, animation and characters. Yeah. So it feels very (laughs) Miyazaki. He had a co-writer, but he uh, I saw characterizes him largely uh, being the one to, to influence the story. Um, of course, there's also like always key key animators and stuff working along with him. But um, you know, all, all, all of them doing this in in four months is 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 completely crazy. Uh, well, I think we'll probably see this uh, explored maybe throughout some movies if if how much Miyazaki is working on everything. And now that's why the current movie he's like he's very old and working at a much slower pace, and so it won't come out for like four more years. I feel like Miyazaki's been saying every movie's his last movie, at least starting with Princess Mononoke. Yes, and he's, yes. he's promised that to people every year. And then it just kept not being true. And I just, oh, man. I, I get that he's just, like, he really, he gets riled up and he wants to, like, you know, he wants to show the world what he's thinking in his brain. But if this is his approach, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff can kill you if you're not careful. And yeah, he well, and he is older, so you can't push yourself like that forever. We'll talk about that with some future Ghibli movies, unfortunately. Oh boy! Uh, yeah, the <laughs> other other aspects of uh, Cagliostro. Um, I mean, just the plot of the movie with the counterfeiting, the uh, the wedding, uh, the clock towers. I love the assassins in this movie. The the ninjas, ninja assassins. Terrifying. <laughs> they make no sense, but like that's fine. They, they're still scary. <laughs> they got some intense armor works. going on. At, at some they point, do. I, at some point, I was thinking, are they frog people? Like, yeah, <laughs> they were armor. It was hard to tell for most they're of just the movie. Ninja human assassins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Alex, what do you think of the counterfeiting? Just the, the plot. Are you engaged by the plot of the movie? Uh, I had fun with it. I think it, it, it satisfyingly keeps the movie focused. Um, I'm not sure if this is a theme of Miyazaki, but there's that scene in the middle where the inspector goes back to the United Nations and they can't agree on anything because everyone is doing bad things and so we're kind of left with government is useless. You got to fix this stuff yourself. I feel like that's a thing, Miyazaki. That, that's, that's the, yeah, that, that's, you're right. That's a notable scene. I don't know if he's as pointedly... 
political, like in that regard. Like, right. Uh, but, it just doesn't feature it, political characters, but uh, but like just just the point of using like real countries is something, right? Like that yeah. there's a Japanese representative, Soviets, United States. And this is the middle of the Cold War, right? So, uh, so that 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 was. The, so I think that that's where the counterfeiting is is at its at its best when like they bring in its effect on the world. Um, and and um, related, it gives the inspector something to do. I think the inspector is real fun in this movie. And <laughs> he's the Javert of this movie. That's all I could think watching it. His obsession with Lupin is so fun. But I have to say, Lupin's partner, uh, Jigen, like they're so gay for each other. It's like they've been married <laughs> for 50 years already. Like they're so comfortable. And it's amazing. And, and I have to imagine. If this show is so prolific that there has that has to be one of the main ships, right? <laughs> it's those two together. Then maybe also Fuchiko, but Lupin and Jigen for sure. Like they're perfect for each other. They're they're so on each other's wavelengths. Yeah, we'll see how many uh, fix there are an archive of our own. Of, There's uh, got to be a lot. I, 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 I think I, that Lupin and Goemon might have more fix than Jigen, but Goemon is not really a character in this movie, which is kind of a problem. He was just there. He barely there. did anything. They were like waiting right, outside right. the castle. He's just being a samurai. Just yeah, it, it, being a samurai in his outfit. Yeah, in the show, he's really cool, and Lupin like fawns over him all the time. Like, oh, oh man, he's so cool. Really? But like, but like in this oh, movie, he doesn't do anything. So. <laughs> I feel like the inspector and Lupin. I think there's a lot, a lot yeah, of that's true. I mean, movie. I just yeah. think that that's the thing. Like, you can ship yeah. Lupin with like anyone, and it makes sense, which is amazing. <laughs> but not Clarice, because the movie says not no, Clarice. So don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> movie says don't do that. Uh, the Count. I feel like the Count is a very Miyazakian type villain. Um, oh yeah. I think uh, he's very imposing and uh, charismatic to a certain extent, but uh, yeah, and his 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 fight in the clock in the clock tower, I think, is is really mm-hmm. good. Um, I think that's Ed Jodot's the leader of the assassins. Interesting character, I guess. He's got like green hair, right? Like that's a, that's a choice. Know. Yeah, he looks um, like a gremlin. I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a clown or a gremlin or both. It's, will, it's good. I will say the thing I remembered like most visually, like after watching this as a teenager, was like the the ninja assassins. I feel like that's just like such a <laughs> like that's like what stuck stuck in my head about this movie. Um, I think we've uh, covered most of the plot and characters and stuff. I mean, there's there's a ton in here. Um, yeah, everything well, um- in the opening scene as well. Well, uh, another scene that's pretty good is the the church scene when uh, when uh, Lupin and his gang comes up to break up the wedding. You got that fake Lupin getting stabbed all all over. That, that. was that, like oh legit. Yeah, that, that's the scene I was thinking of when you, when you said this could be marketed as a kids movie. Like you could, but you also have. Put kids oh yeah, I was I was gonna comment that. I do think I think Lupin's intended for like teenage boys or young adult boys and stuff. So I don't think it's like as traditionally as a kids property. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I see the point that like for the most part this is a pretty wholesome movie. But then there's like brief moments like I was like whoa whoa whoa. You know, was it real? So maybe they could get away with it. It's like oh, right. I'm not a, a real person didn't get stabbed. It was a dummy. Yeah, you could you could do that too. Maybe uh, PG rating would uh, be fine. Uh, Ten year olds, you're good to go. <laughs> okay, Michelle. Says <laughs> also, in that scene, Fujiko with the camera woman plot and like and uh, um, the inspector hamming it up in front of the camera is like, oh, what did I find? Oh, <laughs> like that that whole side in the middle of the fight scene is also like pretty good. They do a good job. Like that, like it's not. 
the fight scenes never last for too long or they interject it with something else going on like you, you never get bored with the action scenes which is a good which is a really good thing for for this kind of movie yeah i think they're all really good and the movie's paced really well um and uh yeah i i don't know it's a and michelle anything else from that's standing out from you from stuff that happens in the movie this was like one of the recent action movies I can think of for like the action actually was very engaging all the time. Cause I feel like sometimes with like genre action films, you can get in this rut where it's like, all right, let's like try this explosion. Let's try this car crash. Let's try this like gun shooting sequence. And it's just like, it feels like they're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Cause that's what you're supposed to do in that kind of genre. But this felt very purposeful. Like they, there are a lot of action sequences in a lot of different locations, but they're all very distinctive and they help progress the plot along. Even if it is working within the constraints of like a very specific genre film, it's like very enjoyable the whole time. Like when they go underwater to like the dungeon and they like yeah, need to find a way out. It's just like, all that stuff is just so good to watch and it just it's fun because like they made the characters fun so watching the characters do all this stuff is like way more enjoyable because like they make it an enjoyable experience so i really like it for that like when i said it was like easy watching it's like that's part of it like it doesn't feel like a slog getting through this like we've seen it a hundred times like it still feels fresh even though like this isn't super unique but it's like fun like that's what makes it unique like how fun and just chill it is yeah, I love I love the scene in the dungeons. Um, it's so good. About that. That's another part that really sticks in my head. I also I think in terms of uh, quick and easy to watch, I think this is probably half an hour shorter than most Miyazaki movies. Oh, uh, that's really a, a key component. Showing yeah. restri- well, if you only got four weeks, I mean, I guess you gotta you know gotta be a little shorter. Yeah, I an mean, hour forty that makes sense for this type of movie. But um, some some of his movies get up there. I feel like in runtime. Um, oh yeah. That may also help to the idea of it feeling very focused on on the story, never really having a tangent time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but compare this to like Nausicaa next week. There's a lot less going on here. Nausicaa has a lot of parts that could have been trimmed, but they did not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll explore this. Okay, one could argue. Alex, <laughs> other parts of Caligostro. Uh, um, I, I mentioned the music at top. Like it, it it's not um. It's it's uh there's nothing like iconic compared to other movies that I've watched. Like there are pieces that are still pretty good. Like the organ music during the the church scene is very is very uh um, like it, it it amps up the tension there. Uh, when he's telling his story about me, uh, meeting Clarice, I have a note here that says there's a flute part in this that kind of sounds like the theme for Shrek and Fiona. Um, so I I I can't okay. trying to remember. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, I think I've covered all the stuff that I wanted to cover from this movie. It was, it's, uh, it's a really fun time. I, I, I agree with, I think Michelle mentioned this, like it, it feels very rewatchable in a yeah. way that, that certain movies, um, like certain movies feel like a lot more investment in terms of your, uh, your brain capacity as well as like just time overall this feels like a movie where like you can just, like sit back you don't really need to think too hard you're just having fun watching watching the story develop but you don't have to think too hard about like what's coming next you know so like in that in that sense i i, I think that this movie triumphs of just being uh, um being e- easier to engage with than maybe some of his more uh, thoughtful works 
Yeah, I think it, yeah, easy to engage with, um, just very fun, very very much a romp. Yeah, as covered. Um, but it was it was a fun one to to revisit. I think for me, uh, Cagliostro, and definitely one all I'll be watching again. Um, and yeah, I think I think we had some good discussion about it. I think maybe some of his other movies will lend to even further deeper discussions. So this can you know can kind of be seen as an introduction to what we'll, uh, we'll be covering in this this podcast series. So. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed everything we talked about. You can always um, let us know what you thought about everything. Um, we we do we podcast generally about animation at the Overly Animated Podcast. The website for that is overlyanimated.com. Um, and you can talk to see see all the methods of contacting us there. Um, and I uh, want to thank the Overly Animated patrons at patreon.com slash overlyanimated. Thanks to all our current patrons, especially our patron of the podcast, Bronwyn, and our thanks as always to our patron executive producers, Ryan, Steve, Alex, Beatrice, Hugh, Michael, Needle, and Phonition. Um, so yes, next Wednesday we'll be talking Nausicaa with for, times with the official release on HBO Max. Very excited to get into one of the my favorite movies ever, one of everyone's favorite movies to a certain extent. Um, <laughs> Love Nausicaa. So much to get into. I'm, I'm in, I will say I've put off talking about a lot of Miyazaki movies for a long time on, on Overly Animated. I'm pretty intimidated to talk about some of the greats, I'll say. Uh, we have we did do an Agnostica podcast in the past, but um, that that would be the probably the reason we're all, we're only doing this in such a structured, coordinated way. You know, I think I think it's uh, the, you know, I re- I revere these so much. So uh, hopefully, I can do justice at all with discussions of them. Um, so uh, we'll we'll be fun to to make this journey. And thanks for checking out the first part of this. Um, we'll see you for Nasca. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.